Philippians 4, verse 2 and 3. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. My name's Craig Hill. Usually I'm sitting where you're sitting. Um, But my name is Craig, and I have a complicated relationship with conflict. I know I'm alone in this. Um, You know, on one hand, uh, my work life, when I work in academics, uh, usually there's a lot of conflict of ideas in academics. And in academics, we tend to hit them head on. Like, we talk about evidence we talk about, um, you know, what, what is, how do these ideas work against each other? And sometimes when they conflict, you know, we, we just hash it out. We hit it head on. Now, that, so that's my work life. But um, I'm also a husband. Don't laugh, okay? I'm just saying. Like, I have a different, I, I'm also a father. I have parents who are older than me that are of a different generation. I have kids. And so sometimes, at least so I'm told, I can sometimes be a little bit, avoiding conflict in my personal relationships. And so I have this this complicated relationship. It turns out that I have this superpower of conflict avoidance. I I didn't know this, but people have informed me of this. But I have a very complicated relationship with conflict. And so when I heard that we were going to do Philippians here, that I was was wondering what my pastor was going to teach about this passage but we're done with Philippians now. And Dave told me, well, if you want to preach, if you want to know what I think about it, you should preach on it. So anyway, Dave, Dave did a wonderful job in Philippians. And, and the three weeks on anxiety were great because I don't have a complicated relationship with that anxiety. I just embrace it fully. Okay, so, but I do have this complicated relationship with conflict. And what's interesting is as we read Philippians, one of the things we might note is that for all the joy talk and rejoicing talk in Philippians and however much we think about birds singing and flowers growing and the sun shining in Philippians, there is a palpable amount of conflict that's under the surface of many of these passages. So for all this talk about joy and rejoicing, there's a lot of talk about disunity and disharmony and disagreement. And the passage that we had read today, and Leslie, I meant to grab you before, but you did a great job with the names, because this is a tough, this is a tough draw um, if you're reading this passage. In our passage 4-2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Suntike to agree in the Lord. And certainly Paul would not have asked these two women, these two prominent women, to agree in the Lord if they were not having a problem agreeing in the Lord. And so what I'd like to do today is I'd like to ask the question, what does Philippians say about conflict within the body of Christ? What does Paul think about conflict within the body of Christ? And we've got to go a little bit around on this because if we're going to talk about conflict, the other side of conflict is the idea of unity or harmony or what in the New Testament and what in the book of Philippians, the apostle Paul will use the word koinonia. And so I want to talk about this idea of what is it that holds a church together 
And what is it about conflict within that church? What about koinonia and what about conflict? So let's talk about koinonia, this idea. Now, for those of you who have been paying attention this last week, koinonia was in the news. Yeah. If you watched any part of the Scripps National Spelling Bee, you would know. (laughs) You would know that Karthik Namani won the spelling bee on the spelling of the word koinonia. Now, the girl that he was up against, she had to spell bevustaslaga. <laughs> kind of a tough draw for her. But look, if you have been around the church for any amount of time, koinonia is not a strange word for you. Like if you grew up in the 90s, you probably had a youth worship band named koinonia or something like that. Okay, but if you're familiar with it, and and actually, koinonia is typically translated as fellowship. And so, in the name of our church, we actually have the element of koinonia. So, Grace Koinonia Church, Grace Fellowship Church. And the thing is, um, sometimes familiarity can breed a sense of, what is this, what is fellowship? Like we don't even, it's kind of this Christianese word a little bit. We're not entirely familiar with it. It's kind of fallen out of use in the general world. There was a very prominent term in the ancient world and when the earliest followers of Jesus were writing this stuff. So I want to ask the question, what is koinonia? And then ask, what is the relationship of conflict within koinonia? And so Paul uses this term or some form of it in Philippians often And what I want to do is just talk about it. And so if there's a definition of koinonia, okay, if there's a definition, there's no one word in English, by the way. That's why we use fellowship, but there's no one word. But here it is. Koinonia is a joint venture or a partnership. Partnership might be a good word for this. It's a joint venture that is coupled with rich emotional experience. So a joint venture, a friendship, or a a partnership coupled with rich, deep, Uh, emotional experience or friendship, partnership and friendship that's drawn together around a common gravitational center. So a joint venture, a partnership, but it's not just like a business partnership. There has to be this notion of deep and rich relational elements, that there's, there's friendship and partnership and friendship around a common gravitational center. And we're familiar with this idea, I guess, in the ancient world. And when Paul's writing this, you've got people from all kinds of different ethnicities coming to the church, different socioeconomic status coming to the church, but they're all coming to the church around a common gravitational center. They might not be at all alike, but they come together around a common center. It's kind of like our solar system. You think about the Earth and you think about Jupiter. What do those planets have in common? Like they're very different. Jupiter's huge. You can't live on it. Like so, but what do they have in common? What they have in common is the sun. They're totally different, but they've gathered around a common gravitational center. Now, if the planets like grew fonder and fonder of each other over time, then you would have koinonia. But that's the idea of this common gravitational center. Maybe a little closer to the idea of koinonia. If you've ever been to a wedding, maybe you've had this experience where you go to a wedding and you look around and you're like, I don't know a single person here. I have no idea. But we have partnership, friendship, fellowship around the idea that we love that couple and we love that they're in love. And so we have, we can share these three, four, five, six, seven hours together as weddings, you know. Um, 
we can share this time together because we have a common gravitational center that has not only bound us together in, in, a, in a, a partnership, but also a friendship for the time. It's kind of like an accident on the 405 freeway. We all gather around it, and then we move on. No deep emotional friendship there. Um, but all believers, all believers um, are drawn together by this idea that you have been asked into partnership by God. You have fellowship with God, partnership with God, and friendship with God. And as God has drawn you into a partnership with him, that you look around and you find, oh, there's other people that God has drawn into partnership with. And now I'm a, those are the people who are around me. And I realize as much as I have koinonia with God, that I now have this new kind of weird group of people that I am having partnership, friendship with, that we're drawn together by a common gravitational center. And when a group of believers is knit together, it's called koinonia. And that's what Paul will talk about. What I want to do is I want to talk about four things about koinonia and how koinonia, when it's thriving, what it looks like, and how the possibility of disagreement might threaten koinonia. And what does Paul think in that case, what does he say? And what we're going to find out is that there's plenty of conflict in the New Testament. And I'm not talking about people on the outside oppressing or persecuting the church. I'm talking about intramural debates and conflict from within. And to ask the question, what does the Bible, what does the New Testament say when koinonia is threatened? All right, here we go. Is everybody here? Is everybody ready? All right. First thing about koinonia is this. Koinonia is voluntary in nature. Koinonia is voluntary in nature. Look at um, Philippians 4.15. Look at Philippians 4.15. We're going to jump around Philippians. It's only two pages long, so we can jump around a little bit. Philippians 4.15. We'll look at a few ways that Paul uses the word koinonia, or uh, variations on it. It says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church koinoniaed with me. I'm making that up, koinoniaed. It is a verb. But no church koinoniaed with me in giving and receiving except you alone. And the first thing that we see is Paul goes into the city of Philippi. He preaches the gospel that God's saving power is available in Jesus Christ. And these people get on board, and what they realize is that Paul's saying, you know what I think? I think we ought to proclaim this in as many places as we possibly can. And the Philippians are saying, I think we should proclaim this in as many places as we possibly can. And they're like, hey, we have koinonia on this. And so what they decide to do is they decide to enter into a more specific partnership. We want to give finances to you. We want to send people to help you. We want to pray for you. We want to enter into a rich emotional friendship with you about this mission, this goal. But it's not out of obligation. It's that they found themselves voluntarily helping. No other church, Paul doesn't ask, he doesn't, Dave talked about this last week, no churches are mandated to give to Paul. As a matter of fact, he says, look, I I don't want to confuse you guys. I want you to know that the gospel's free of charge. And I don't want want your money because I don't want you to be confused that I'm doing this for money. But the Philippians said, no, 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 we get that. We voluntarily want to get on board and enter into a tighter circle of koinonia, partnership, fellowship with you. 
They all seem to be very interested, and Paul seems to be very interested about the gospel. And it seems like somewhere right in the middle of that gravitational center is this idea of the gospel. Look at 127. In 127, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is partnership language. This idea, in one spirit, striving side by side in one mind. This is partnership. And it's all centered around this idea, worthy of the gospel, that God's saving power is available in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, that seems so central to Paul. The proclamation of that message, that God's saving power is available in the person of Jesus Christ, that he starts his letter off this way. That Paul had been this traveling evangelist going around place to place to place, as many places as he could find in the Gentile world to preach this message, to preach the gospel. But when he writes this letter, he had been arrested and he could no longer travel around. And so the very first thing he tells the Philippians is, hey, I want you guys to know what has happened to me. And this is in 112. I want you to know what has happened to me has actually served to further the progress of the gospel. It hasn't stopped the progress of the gospel like you might think because I can't travel around anymore. It's actually furthered the gospel. So the very first thing he says in this letter is to reaffirm the koinonia and the partnership that they have together around particularly this idea of the gospel. Now, here's the thing. Um, thinking about this idea that Paul has gone into Philippi, he's preached this message, and then they said, well, we want a tighter circle of partnership and fellowship with you, of friendship with you. We want to give, we want to volunteer on this. And this brings up a point. This morning, all around Orange County, people have gathered because they love Jesus. And we love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. You know, okay, you get the idea. You know, we, we do too, okay? We love Jesus. They love Jesus. But the partnership and fellowship is tighter here because there's something about shared interests that we've all voluntarily entered into. Like, we might have a general degree of partnership and fellowship with believers all around the world, maybe even a tighter circle of fellowship and friendship around believers in this Orange County area, but we have various unique sensibilities. We have a flute, you know, like, there's, there's all kinds, of, we have violins, you know, there's, there's, there's certain styles, like, if you like pews, you know, you might not like this, or if you feel like chairs, you might, these are kind of few chairs. You know, like, there's different sensibilities. I don't want to make light of the things that bind us together, but there are various sensibilities that are unique. It's a tighter circle of fellowship. There are certain ministries that if you come to Grace, you know about and want to support. There are certain, th- the youth group, you might even be like in a small group, and in that small group, you have a tighter circle of partnership than you would have with the broader church as a whole. Do you get this idea that partnership, koinonia, can tighten and particularly needs to tighten as we move into smaller communities and not just the global body of Jesus? All right, we get that? So we've got this idea that it's voluntary in nature. Um, But we also get this idea that there are goals that we gather around that tighten our circles of 
koinonia, of partnership and of friendship. And the more specific the goal, the more intimate you go into koinonia. And underneath this main hub, this idea, God saving power in Jesus, there are lots of things that we might latch onto in a church context that bind us together with other people. Sometimes I'm friends with these people. Sometimes it's I'm in this small group with this person. Sometimes it's I volunteer in the children's ministry. Okay? Sometimes it's some, whatever it is, or I serve on the worship team, or I, I'm in this, in this group, I'm in blessing, or something like that. And this is awesome. I mean, it's awesome that we, we bind together around things that we care about. We voluntarily associate. But what's interesting is the voluntary nature of this and the specific goals are what make this so beautiful. But it's also what makes this so fragile. That because there's specificity of goal, specificity of ideas... And voluntary nature. Nobody is colluding to keep you here. Nobody is going to leverage and manipulate you to stay. If you want to go, you may go. It's something that makes this so beautiful. But it's also something that makes this so fragile. And as much as fellowship, koinonia, is a joint venture with rich emotional experience drawn together around a common gravitational center... The third point is that there is a continual danger of disagreement among partners and friends. As much as we think about the earliest followers of Jesus, why can't we just be more like the early church? We think about those Acts passages. We all shared all this stuff in common and nobody had any need. And everybody, you know, it was sunshine and roses and hummingbirds and it was beautiful. And, and that's what, but the more we look at the New Testament, the more we, and even the book of Philippians, we can see that the earliest followers of Jesus, like us, are not immune to conflict. There's a theme of discord in Philippians. And it helps us as we think about our own body here and churches locally. Look at 4.2, our passage that we had read. I urge Euodia and I urge Suntike to agree in the Lord. Literally what that says in Greek, I urge you to have the same mind in the Lord. And I want you to remember that phrase, to have the same mind. And what's going on here in Philippi is it seems as though you have two influential women, long-time believers, long-time co-workers with Paul is what he calls them. They are sisters in Christ, and it seems as though they have had a disagreement. They're godly women. There's nothing in the text that implies that they're troublemakers. Actually, if you read Paul's letters, if someone is a troublemaker, he typically doesn't name them. He only names his friends, enemies, or people that are his opponents. He won't name. He's kind of like he's kind of a a civil guy that way. Like he's not going to call anyone out by name. But these women, he calls them out by name, probably because they're influential, they're prominent, and they're godly. They're not heretics. They're not in sin. Otherwise, we have other places of Paul where we hear how he addresses those issues. So these women are likely people that are 
influential, but they have had a disagreement that is significant. Like it's significant enough that it reaches the ears of Paul, however many hundreds of miles away. Probably significant enough that if you were to ask about Philippians, you might say, well, how's that thing with Yodi and Suntike going? We don't know what their dispute was, but it's significant enough for Paul to address each of these women by name. Earlier in the book, we can see a little bit of maybe a broader discord within the Philippian church. In 2.14, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. And so it seems as though perhaps some of them were grumbling and disputing, or were even characterized by that. In 2.3, Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness, or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let you regard each one as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And it seems as though there might have been some that were looking out for their own personal interests, that they were doing things out of selfishness or out of conceit. Think about even where Paul is at in prison back in 115. He says, hey, look, I'm under house arrest or I'm in prison. Um, And that is, for some, that's increased a boldness of preaching. They want to proclaim Christ. And some people do it out of great motives, but some preach Christ from envy and rivalry. What? Like, pastors are competitive? Oh, my gosh. Say it isn't so. Um, Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in prison. This is not an external persecution opposition of the church. This is from within the church. Now, as we think even more broadly about this in the New Testament, there's a number of things that are matters of intramural disagreement within the body of Christ. We can read in the New Testament about a conflict, about method or strategy in the giving of the gospel. Peter says, look, I want to go to the Jews with this. And Paul says, I want to go to Gentile regions about this. And so there's a difference of opinion about which region gets priority in the proclamation of the gospel. There can be conflict about a person. As Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go out on the second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16, Barnabas wants to take along John Mark, his nephew. And John Mark had abandoned the team on the first missionary journey, and Paul says, I don't want to take John Mark. And it says that such a sharp disagreement arose between them that they parted ways. Barnabas took John Mark and went in one direction. Paul took Silas and went in another direction, and he picked up Timothy, and the book of Acts follows Paul, Barnabas, or Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but it doesn't follow Bar- uh, Barnabas and John Mark. doesn't mean that Barnabas and John Mark were in the wrong on that, but that Luke was with Paul. But that's a sharp disagreement that causes a breaking of a circle of partnership. Two men who had shared tears and blood in ministry. And I'm not exaggerating, tears and blood. And they chose, they saw it was was necessary, or for some reason or another, 
that they could not agree and they broke their circle of koinonia. Conflict can be about leaders. In the Corinthian church, we read in the first couple chapters that there are some people in the church who are saying, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Peter. And you, so you have this like, hey, I w- I'm a founding member of this church because I was with Paul when he founded this church. Well, I'm of Apollos because he's smarter than all these guys. And I'm with Peter because, hey, he's the rock, right? So you have this, who discipled me? Who baptized me? And you have this factionism that, are, that, that, co- that starts to pervade the Corinthian congregation. Conflict can be about resources. In the same book that talks about they were all in one accord and birds are singing and flowers are growing, to only two chapters later that you have a disagreement about whether or not the church should offer feeding and the resources to women whose Jewish husbands had died. Hellenistic widows, if you don't have a Jewish head of household, are you still Jewish and can you be part of this gathering? And so widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food. Is that the kind of church we want to be? I mean, but that's the early church. And there's conflict. And so they solve that problem. They appoint people to to work out the, the equal distribution of food. And one of those persons is Stephen, who ends up giving his life for the gospel, a martyr. Conflict can be about doctrine. Peter and Paul, we read about... Um, We read about them in Galatians chapter 2 that they have a conflict about whether or not they should eat kosher at the Lord's Supper. Paul didn't like it because it excluded Gentiles because they didn't eat kosher. But all the Jews wanted to eat kosher. What do you do then? What do you do when there's a threat of disagreement that's going to break a primary bond of koinonia? The Bible's not silent about this. There's a lot of conflict, and Paul's not silent about this. And the question is, what do we do with conflict? And I'll tell you this. I I know that for some of you, I don't have to tell you that there are dangers of disagreements in churches. For me, why am I thinking about this? Why did I want to hear what Dave had to say about this? Um, And why am I talking about this now? 2017, for me, was a year of church conflict. I was brought in as a consultant on a search team of a a small church in Anaheim. It was a church that's on a three-acre campus. They have a 400-seat sanctuary, but only 50 people were showing up on a Sunday morning, and that was a good day. And they were on a pastoral search, and they were looking at how, how do we revitalize this church? And they started to ask the question, do we just need a pastor, or do we, should we merge with a like-sized church plant, or should we get integrated into a larger church? And so I walked them through the decision-making, like, what do we do? And we came up with eight different options, and we vetted all these options. We interviewed four of them, and then we boiled it down to two, and then we went to one, and they chose an integration option with another church, a church that was up in Brea that was renting a facility, but they had 400 people. And so what, what can you do with this? And, and I remember during this time, so they decided that they were going to merge to integrate. And um, I remember at this time, I was in a lot of meetings. And uh, I was leaving for a meeting, and my daughter, Emma, she stopped me, and she said, Dad, are you going to go meet with those two churches that are going to collide? <laughs> and I said, I said, I think you mean merge, Emma, but I think you're right. Um, and it was, uh, one of the things that we did in the process was as they started to come together, we said, let's have a Sunday morning where every, both churches worship in the same location together. And on that morning, I got up and I was making some announcements talking about the history of, of this. And, and I said, and I told the Emma story, and I said, today is Collision Sunday. 
And it was good. It kind of, it, 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 there was plenty of anxiety and it relieved a little bit of that. And it was funny because, you know, I'm a funny guy. Um, but, uh, but the truth is, there was plenty of tension. And there are some people today that are really excited about what has happened over the last year. And there are some today that are frankly not happy about what has happened over the last year. It's different, every, it's different now for everybody. And the idea that change was on the horizon and no one could stop that from coming. That, that was this, what do we do if we have this circle of koinonia and it's never going to be the same again? Do we break the circle? Do we move in different directions? How do we move forward in light of this? Add to this that another church that I know fairly well has been in a year of conflict as well. And people that I love dearly are on two sides of a conflict. And, it's, and hearing about it has been like a kick in the gut. And I don't have to tell you, and it seems as though there's a number of churches in the area that have been in transition. And many, many of you are here because those transitions, you had to make a hard decision about breaking a circle of koinonia that you had been in for a long time and had been nurtured in. And I know I make light of like, pews or chairs, stuff like that. And I don't want to diminish the, the weight of the sort of decisions that have to be made or the, or the things that have been disagreed over. But what does Paul say when this kind of disagreement threatens koinonia? What does he say? What kind of advice does he give? What does he encourage the Philippians to do? And this is our fourth point. And I would say this, that koinonia stabilizes or deepens, depending on the situation. But koinonia stabilizes as we re-identify the most weighty gravitational center. For Paul, in a book with a significant amount of conflict, Paul will spend a lot of his ink making sure that the Philippians know what is the most weighty gravitational center. And for Paul... Jesus Christ and the proclamation of Jesus is the gravitational center that he gathers and regathers the Philippians around if conflict looms on the horizon. Look at 2.5, the central, the central passage of Philippians. Paul says this, have this attitude in yourselves. Literally, it says, have the same mind, which is exactly what he says to Yodi and Suntike, to have the same mind. He says back in chapter 2, have the same mind which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if that pumps you up, you hear the gravitational center. 
The gravitational center, as, can you join, Euodian Suntake, can you join your voices in that? Can you say Jesus is Lord in unison, in harmony? Can you feel the same pull that I feel with this? Can you identify that she feels the same thing that you feel about this central thing? And now, how does your disagreement look now? And maybe it's still there, but there's a different posture now that you're able to see that you both have this gravitational pull towards this same thing. Paul continues by affirming and holding to the centrality of Jesus, what that means for him. Look at 3.7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There's your hub. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What's interesting is he says, Jesus, he had this thing, this form of God. He was in the form of God, but he gave it up. He considered it lost. He didn't hold on to it and emptied himself. And Paul says, I had all of this. I had all of this stuff. And I now consider it, I give it up. I give it as loss. And you wonder if Paul is not saying to either Euodian Suntake, because he doesn't seem to take sides, but he's saying, Do you think that maybe one of you is willing to give it up? To have the same mind as Jesus? To have the same mind as I have? To not hold on to what belongs to me? Man, there there are, and look, church is a tricky place. Again, I have have a, a complicated relationship with conflict. There are so many different gravitational centers that we can build our lives and friendships around. Even this morning, you might not have noticed, but we've even talked about four or five or six different gravitational centers from the stage about what might bind you together. Different ministries, different methods, different theological emphases, different worship styles different leaders, different political views, so many different gravitational centers and so many places where we might experience conflict and disagreement. How do disagreements around these sorts of things look in light of the surpassing value of Jesus Christ? Because Paul seems to say, that seems to be what he's saying in Philippians. What does it look like now? Now, there's a couple of other things that Paul does. And if you found yourself in a place of disagreement, I think that this passage might be helpful in just some practical things that can be done between two brothers or two sisters or two people within a church that have a disagreement on something. For one, if we look at 4.3, in 4.3, after he says, I I urge Euodia and I urge Suntake to agree in the Lord, he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me. Sometimes we are helped back into koinonia by a third party. Someone who sees our conflict and says, can I help? And one thing that we note about this is Paul, is that it's not a person who's coming in and taking sides, but it's a person like, because Paul doesn't, what's, what's fascinating about this passage is Paul says, 
I urge Euodia, and I urge Suntike. He actually, there's great symmetry in the way he addresses this. He uses the word urge twice. I exhort Yodia and I exhort Suntike. He's not taking sides. And then he simply says, I urge you, my true companion, whoever that is, Sunzuge. There's a lot of questions about who that is. But the idea is just help these women. Help them. Don't take a side, just help them. And sometimes we know if we've mediated a conflict between two friends that we find ourselves on the outs with both of our friends. And so Paul is enlisting someone to put their own relational capital on the, on the line. Sometimes it's the Holy Spirit who does this sort of work. Look at 315. In 315, after talking about a, a little doctrinal issue, Paul says, um, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise... God will reveal that also to you. Sometimes it's the Holy Spirit who comes into our situations and says, you know, maybe you should soften that. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes into our own stubbornness and our own heel digging in and says, maybe you should look at it from another perspective. Maybe you should put yourself in their shoes. Maybe you should try to identify what valid concerns this other person has. Maybe you should not consider what you have something to be held on to, like Jesus and like Paul. Sometimes we're reminded, if you go back to our passage in 4.3, sometimes we need to be reminded that we have labored side by side with someone. Or sometimes... We have to be reminded that the person I'm at odds with, that their name is also written in the book of life. Paul seems to think that there's a centrality of Jesus, a centrality of the proclamation of the gospel that God's saving power is available in Jesus. And are you at odds with a brother or sister in faith or even know someone who's at odds with a brother or sister in faith? The corrective of disagreement, according to Paul, is a return to the gravitational center, the common belief in the centrality of Jesus, the common experience of the graciousness of forgiveness in Christ, the common attitude of Christ, which is humility, one who does not hold on to what belongs to him, and the common goal of the progress of the news about God's saving power that is available in Jesus Christ. Now, what if disagreements remain disagreements? And that certainly is a possibility. It was for Paul and Barnabas when they decided about John Mark. It happens, and it happens in churches all the time. And certainly, as growing people, we find ourselves in places where we might want to go in a different direction. And, but, and there, there, there are no airtight formulas in the Bible, but the Bible is not silent about it. It should be noted, though, that if Euodia and Suntike did not resolve their conflict, they could not simply go down the street to a different church. And sometimes, and I'm not, look, more churches the better. I think it's awesome. But sometimes the multiplicity of churches in a geographical region sometimes short circuits the real work 
of holding on to koinonia. And I'm not, I'm not saying, again, sometimes disagreements are disagreements. What I want to, for me, and, and again, I, 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 I resigned as a pastor at a church. I left a church. I, asked, I had to ask hard questions about, do we break this circle of koinonia and move into a different direction? So these are not foreign questions to me, and I know they're not foreign questions to you. My question is, have you done some work on asking the question, what is church about? now why am i here and that's that's what i want to that's that's as we as we wrap this up i just want to ask everyone here because it's it's good to do a diagnostic every once in a while and i just want to ask you a simple question and that is this what are you doing here what are you doing here maybe I need a place to raise my family. I need a good place of faith to raise my family. Maybe I need connection as a man or as a woman. I need a connection in a small group. Maybe it's about, I need a place to hear good Bible teaching. You're hearing great Bible teaching this morning. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um, Maybe I need, I need rich friendships. Maybe it's just, I like the vibe. Maybe it's, I like violins and flutes. Like, maybe I like the music. Whatever it is, and I don't want to make light of why you're here, but it certainly deserves a diagnostic about why are you here. And let me just say this. As much as Paul and the New Testament talks about koinonia, the goal of this church is not koinonia. Koinonia is a byproduct of looking at something else. And this is why if we gather simply for the sake of friendship, simply for the sake of one of these other gravitational centers in our universe, some other thing, that it becomes elusive to us because what we find is that real koinonia comes when we are so focused and so transfixed on the beauty and centrality of Jesus and the centrality of God's saving work in the person of Jesus that we look around and we find ourselves, oh, look at these other people, they're looking at the same thing I'm looking at. But once we get off that one thing or lose that one thing, then all we have is the color of the carpet or the pews or, or, or this ministry or this person or whatever, and it's off the hub. And so simply to ask a question, simply to think, I love the friendships and relationships that I have here, but I have to remind myself they are not the thing. They are not the thing itself. Just because all my friends go to this church is not a reason to go to a church. The proclamation of the saving power of God in Jesus Christ is what the church is about. And when we focus on that, then we get beautiful fellowship. But if we lose that, then there are dangers of disagreement that lay ahead. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this place, for this space, for the thoughtful people that, that lead us in worship, that teach the, the word every week. But Father, we don't want to confuse these awesome things, these awesome people for the thing itself. 
which is your saving power in your son and the proclamation of that. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here and that have had to make hard decisions about maybe breaking a circle of fellowship that they have been a part of. And I, I pray that just the sense of refocusing, does it help? Does it help to think about the person you're at odds with, that their name is written in the book of life? Does it help to remember that you've worked side by side with them? I certainly would rather talk about this, any other thing than this, but Father, we pray that as we look at you, as we look at your son and as we proclaim the great news that your saving power is available in Jesus, that we may find ourselves in deep bonds of fellowship, but that we would not confuse those deep bonds of fellowship with the centrality of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.